This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Bob Tabador. This week, two guests, two interesting people, and uh, really enjoyed these conversations. Michael Kay is up first, and he is the television play-by-play broadcaster for the New York Yankees, which I think many of you probably listening to this podcast know, host of the Center Stage Show on the Yes Network, and the host of the Michael Kay Show, just heard on ESPN Radio in New York City from 2 to 6.30 p.m. Michael has a book out, Center Stage my most fascinating interviews from A-Rod to Jay-Z. And in our episode here, we talk about his interviews with Center Stage, some of the more interesting moments. His uh, The list of people who have been on Michael's interview show is crazy. And so really fun stories about Mike Tyson and Sylvester Stallone that you'll hear on this podcast. And then I also get into uh, calling the Yankees with Michael and uh, sort of how to navigate the world of, you know, you're working for ownership at the same time you want to be honest with uh, viewers and listeners, what he thinks is going to happen with um, baseball heading forward in terms of broadcasters uh, traveling on the road. And then we get into radio and sports talk radio and the competition there. And uh, he was very honest about sort of uh, being thin-skinned, hard to take criticism, which is probably true for many of us in this profession. And then the uh, ratings rivalry he has with his uh, WFA counterparts, uh, Craig Carton and Evan Roberts. And Michael K. very honest about uh, how he felt about beating Francesa and then how he feels about competing with those two guys. So if you're into radio, I think you'll enjoy it. Michael K. is followed by John Wertheim, my longtime colleague at Sports Illustrated and one of the best people I know in the business. He has a new book out, Glory Days, the Summer of 1984 and the 90 Days That Changed Sports and Culture. John, of course, is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated, correspondent for 60 Minutes, and an analyst for the Tennis Channel. And so we talk about John's book, his new book, which uh, has all these amazing things that happened in the summer of 1984, including Michael Jordan as a uh, as a young guy training for the uh, Summer Olympics in John's hometown of Bloomington, Indiana, uh, WrestleMania, and the WWE blowing up that summer, uh, ESPN becoming a major cable television force, some uh, just amazing cultural milestones that happened. And then we finished that conversation up with Naomi Osaka and where John thinks that situation will be heading. So Michael K. up first, followed by John Wertheim on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, Michael K. has a lot of jobs. I will go through most of them here again. He's a television play-by-play broadcaster or voice of the New York Yankees, host of Center Stage, on the Yes Network, and the host of the Michael K. Show, which is heard on ESPN Radio in New York City, although I guess in theory you could hear that anywhere, from 2 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. He's here for his new book, Center Stage, my most fascinating interviews from A-Rod to Jay-Z. That comes out this week. Michael actually can tell 
or will he'll tell me once he comes on here if it's actually out at the moment but you can certainly get it on amazon and that book again for people who've watched center stage is about a, the uh, it's a collection of um of all the interviews that he's done uh behind the scenes moments and uh some of the questions that uh, have been asked and answered on that show that, that that shows that kind of a remarkable amount of guests and uh and i'm pleased to be joined by michael k thanks for joining me mike on the uh sports media podcast you got it richard how you doing i'm doing well um i've had better intros than that mike but uh, it's early <laughs> in the morning so we'll let people behind the fourth wall here but uh but i appreciate you coming on all right first off do you think you're a good interviewer you know what? I, I, I think I do. I, I don't want to pat myself on the back, but I just think uh, ever since I was a kid, I've had an innate curiosity about things. So I ask questions and I, I, I think, you know what, Richard, I think a bad interviewer is somebody who wants to hear his own voice. If you watch any of the center stage shows or listen to my radio show, my questions are never longer than the answer. And I think a lot of interviewers try to tell you how much they know. And I just want my guests to tell me what they know. So uh, curiosity and that factor that I don't talk as much as the guests, I think, I think makes me a pretty decent interviewer. You, you, um, as people certainly in New York know, you host a radio show in addition to your job as, uh, the Yankees television voice, which I think probably nationally most people know you for how much has the radio show helped you as an interviewer with center stage? Well, I think they both came along at the same time. I think the thing that helped me as an interviewer the most was being a writer first. You know, I wrote for the post and then the news and, you know, you've got to get, you got to get information out of people. And when, when you're a writer, obviously you're not going to talk a lot. You just want them to talk a lot. You want to get as much info as you can. And I just think from that point on, I, I don't know, maybe it's something I just feel funny talking about myself. You just, you know, you, you find the right question to ask to, to push the right button to get the right answer because you only have a limited amount of time when you're in a locker room. So I was covering the Yankees for five years for the post and the news. And I think it just, it, it went on from there. Center stage has had some really big names on the show. I mean, we're talking about uh, certainly in the sports world and the entertainment world about as high profile as you can get. So I'll name a couple of them. Serena Williams, Sylvester Stallone, Jay-Z, Mike Tyson, Joe Namath, uh, Quentin Tarantino. If you find Michael's book, you'll see, um, You'll see other names on the on the front jacket. Um, were these, and I say this, Michael, with no disrespect to you, but these are big names. Were they easy to book? And have you been surprised at some of the people who have popped on to your show here on Yes? Um, well, I think at this point, Richard, we've had 240 guests. And I, I would say, without naming the ones that aren't, about 210 of them are legitimate A-list guests. And remember, the show's been on for 20 years. Yeah. So uh, I got to be brutally honest. It was a lot easier early because now there's so many ways for people to get out information. And when you when you commit to center stage, it's an hour show. And it's really an hour and 40-minute commitment, you know, getting there, putting makeup on, you know, sitting there for the commercials and stuff like that. So because of the pandemic, we have not taped a show in about two years. So it's going to be interesting to see now with the advent of Zoom interviews, if we're going to get people back in um, to an audience and get the audience back in. Uh, but I think the thing that got us the guest at the beginning, Richard, is just the lore of the Yankee name. Hmm. Um, so you have the Yankees and the Yes Network, and that's kind of like a premium brand and people want to be associated with that. 
I mean, when I first started, I mean, I, I had done Yankee radio for 10 years. So I, I don't think that my name was attracting any, any of these people. I just think the Yankee name was, and just the, the ability to be on the Yankee network. And, and the, sometimes I look at the names, you know, the 35 that we picked for the book and it's just startling. I mean, these are names that the biggest network would want to get for an interview for an hour and a half. So we're pretty proud of that. The, you know, one of the things in, um, in reading about someone like the very famous, uh, talk show hosts in U.S. history, whether it's like the Carsons or the Lettermans or the Lenos. Um, what's always been fascinating to me are like when you sort of learn about like what happens before the show starts, like one of these guys would go in to a green room, what the interactions were between, let's say, like a Carson, you know, whatever, Sinatra or Don Rickles or something like that before actually we saw them live uh, in front of our television. As a host, would you go and try to talk to the guests or have some kind of interaction with them prior to the interview? Or were you one who wanted the interview to be so organic where there was no, the first time you saw them is when they literally, let's say, walked on the stage. I walked into the room to say hello. And I never really went further than that with a lot of them. They'll start asking me about the Yankees, which is fine because that's not what the interview is going to be about. But I just thought, you know, I, I heard all those stories too, Richard. I just thought that was rude. You know, the first time that they're ever going to see me, you know, they don't even know me. Um, that, you know, I'm going to pop, they're going to pop up on stage and there I am waiting for them. So I definitely shook their hand, went into their room, uh, said hello, but nothing about the interview at all. And, um, you know, a lot of, most of these people were, were cool with like, just, you know, they, they knew it was an interview about the arc of their life and, you know, the story of their life. But, uh, you could tell the people that are controlling like Bill Parcells wanted questions, <laughs> which we would not, we would not give him. You know, he asked our producer, you know, who, who makes a cold call to them before, you know, just to go over some things. And, you know, he just wanted to know. He didn't want to be caught by surprise. And that, that's why he's a great coach because nothing – he didn't want anything to surprise him. But for the most part, they, they had no idea what, would, what was going to go on on that interview and just, just a hello for me. So they didn't see my big face for the first time on stage. What for you are some of the more memorable moments when the camera stops during a commercial break or after the interview concludes? Because to me, that's always no disrespect to your interviews. Oftentimes those are more interesting perhaps than what they said during the interview itself. Well, I have this in the book about Stallone. Um, you know, at the beginning of center stage, when we first started, like the first five or six years, there would be a segment where we'd have the audience ask questions. And it could be anybody. And the audience members came there via, you know, just going online on the Yes Network site and clicking. And, you know, we had to turn away a lot of people. The audience would range anywhere from which studio we did from 100 to like 200 people. And uh, so Stallone, people getting ready, you know, they, they have to line up by the mic during the commercial break. And out of the audience pops Chuck Wepner. Oh, wow who um, was not invited by us and at that point had a very contentious uh, relationship with Stallone because Stallone, I guess, foolishly had said at one point that the Rocky movies were based on the Chuck Wepner Ali fight. Um, and um, Sly sees him and all of a sudden the color drains from his face. And he looks at me like in horror and he goes, did you guys set me up? I said, what are you talking about? He said, did you have Chuck Wepner come here? I said, no. He goes, and why is he here? He said, he got a ticket online. And he goes, this is not going to be good. I said, 
well, it'll be fine. And he looked at me and goes, listen, if, if he comes to the States, you have my back. And I looked at him. I said, you're Rocky. Have your back. <laughs> and he goes, well, I mean, what if he did? I said, we, we this, I don't think he's going to do anything. I said, we have security here. I just thought that was the funniest thing. You know, big, tough Sylvester Stallone was worried if I had his back. So that, that, that's one of the things I have in the book, but you know, Wepner just asked a, a, a very benign question. I think Wepner liked the fact that he made Stallone nervous that day. And they eventually came to some sort of a financial agreement later on, years later, where they're not at odds anymore. But that that was fun. That was a that was the fun behind the scenes. I like that recollection. Um, one of the a uh, couple of times like uh, over the over the past year, you know, you get into I've gotten into a sort of a Google uh, rabbit hole. And I've watched some old interviews of Dick Cavett, the Dick Cavett show. I don't know if you've ever yeah. seen any of that. And there was one Michael, uh, there was one interview that Dick Cavett did, Michael, with Dick Van Dyke. It was about uh, maybe twenty minutes segment on Dick Van Dyke's alcoholism, and it was about it was like the most honest interview I think I've ever seen on television. Dick Van Dyke was could not have been more honest about the disease, how he approached it how it sort of interacts with him on a daily basis. And I thought to myself, like, it was so honest as sort of a long-form talk show interview that it stunned me because I just don't see this in 2021. And I wonder, for you as an interviewer who's had some very well-known people in that kind of setting, like, how hard is it to break from, like, the back and forth of everybody sort of playing their role? I mean, in many of these people you've had on our actors to get to something real. Do you know what I mean? To get to a moment yeah. that doesn't feel scripted and that feels honest and, like, me as a viewer can come away from something you did the way I came away from Cabot and Van Dyke going, like, wow, like, I think I just saw something that was totally raw and honest here. I think the only way you could do it, Richard, is um, with a long-form interview. Because as the hour goes on, they get more comfortable. I don't think you could do it if you're Fallon um, uh, or Colbert. I mean, those are eight-minute interviews. And that's what, that's what many entertainers prefer. You know, it's all scripted. They know what they're going to say. The bits are done. But we've had a couple of those instances. One made the book, book and one didn't. One, one that did make the book was Terry Crews. Oh, yeah. He was on stage, and he started talking about how he was sexually abused in Hollywood. And he just started weeping on stage and it was really powerful. And the other one was um, Mike Tyson, which was uh, of all the interviews we've ever done. That's, that's definitely in the top five. And throughout the interview, Richard, alternately, he would start laughing uproariously. He'd start weeping. Uh, he'd have anger. I mean, he was all over the place. It was it was powerful. If you were watching it on TV, you would not turn it off. And, you know, I later found out, even after I wrote the book, I later found out that that was the genesis of the Mike Tyson on Broadway show. Spike Lee watched that show on TV and the idea of producing a one man show for Mike Tyson on Broadway hit him. And he contacted Tyson and said, what you did on that show, that's that's what we do on Broadway. And it had a pretty nice run. So I, I, it's long answer to a short question. I think you have to make the guests comfortable. They have to feel like they're in a, uh, a conversation and not an interview. Because if they're in an interview, you know, the hair on the back of their neck is up. If they're in a conversation, they're just relaxed. And they'll, they'll say things that they, they don't expect to say. And so many guests have said that 
I, I feel so, I just feel like I'm talking to you. I'm probably saying stuff that I shouldn't say. And they do end up saying stuff that they wouldn't say. And I'm sure that their publicists don't want them to say. Yeah. That's Spike Lee Tyson uh, anecdote. That's very cool. Uh, you know, there's a lot of obviously people I'm sure who would be on your wish list and uh, who would be at the top of the wish list of who remains out there that you'd like to, to do a long form interview with. I really would like to um, interview Springsteen. Um, that's somebody I've always wanted. We've tried. We had Steve Van Zant on. We never got Springsteen. Uh, so that, that's been tough. I'd like to get Jerry Seinfeld. We've gotten we've had Larry David, but we never got Seinfeld. You know, I, I said earlier, like the Yankee name helps us. I think with Seinfeld, it hurts us because he's such a big Met fan. Exactly. So that that probably doesn't help us at all. But uh, Springsteen, Seinfeld, and I'd like to, you know, if I could sit down and just ask him anything, um, I'd like to have Bill Clinton on. And we almost had him once, and he had a book out about golf. And his people said all I could ask him about was golf. And I said, well, I don't want him. And they said, why? I said, well, if I have the, a former president of the United States, and I'm just going to talk about golf with him. It's going to look stupid. I mean, there's just so much fruit hanging off the tree. How could I not ask him anything now? Well, we won't. If you ask him anything else, take him off the stage. And I said, we turned him down because, I, I mean, if, if I'm going to talk to Clinton or if I'm going to talk to Bush, I want to be able to ask them questions, you know, about the world when they were in power, not about their golf game. Yeah. Yeah. You can't take that interview. That's the right call for sure. Yeah. Seinfeld's going to do center stage with Gary Cohen as opposed to. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. All right. Let's. So again, that's sort of, you can get uh center stage, the book, Mike, basically go to Amazon. It's coming out this week. Any major place that sells, uh, sells hardcover books at the moment. Yeah. June 15th is the actual release date. A lot of people, I mean, we've been thrilled. I guess we're, we're already like the number one sports book on Amazon for the last yeah. couple of weeks just on the, in terms of a uh, pre-order. So we're thrilled. So it, it's the first book I've ever done and I'm kind of excited about it. And it's been like, it's been in the hopper for about two years and we kept postponing it because of the pandemic. Didn't think there'd be a big, uh, you know, the pandemic and the election, we just thought that wasn't the right uh, time to release it. But um, we think now's the right time right before father's day. Yeah, now you can do signings. You could actually go to a bookstore. That's actually really good news. All right, let's uh, let's switch to your other jobs. I have a number of questions on this. How so? Um, so my listeners just have the um, the details. How long have you been calling the Yankees at this point? This this is my thirtieth year, which is unbelievable. Ten with John on radio, John Sterling, and uh, the last twenty with the Yes Network since it started. Why do you still enjoy it? Why do you still enjoy the uh, the same job after thirty years? Because um, it's the job I wanted since I was nine. I mean, I used to tell my parents who were very supportive, but always said, well, have something to fall back on just in case. But I wanted to be the Yankee announcer since I was nine years old. So every day I walk into that booth, not to sound corny, I realize how lucky I am, you know, to actually be announcing, you know, one of the most famous teams in the world, certainly in the top five. And um, I, I happen to love the game of baseball. Not as much now as I did before because, not because I'm bored by it, but I just don't like the way the game is played anymore. But overall, it, it's to me, it's not it's not heavy lifting. It's not something I, you know, dread going to work. I love going to work every single day. So as long as my voice holds up and my body holds up and the Yankees still want me to do it, I, I can see this doing it for a long time. Have people like um Vince Scully or, and I'm not comparing, nobody really compares to Vince Scully. So no. I'm not comparing you to him, but 
have people who have worked, or Hubie Brown, people who have worked, Dick Vitale, people who have now worked into their 80s, uh, late 80s, in the case of Hubie, does that give you, um, and I would ask this of anyone in your position, does, does th- has that extended maybe your own thinking in terms of how long someone can do a job like yours? Because once upon a time, you know, they probably would have made a switch, you know, when someone in your position is 60 or 65 years old. But today, I feel like that should be about merit, meritocracy. If you're still doing good at 75, wh- why should age matter? Yeah, I don't think age should matter. Um, and, and in baseball, I think um, it seems like we have a lot of people that go late in life, like, you know, Ernie Harwell and Harry Carey and you know, you, you almost become part of the family. If you're announcing a baseball team, 150 games a year, I look at Vince Scully though, who I look as the, he's the, the God of baseball broadcasters. And he went to the same school as me. Yep, uh, yep. I, I don't, I mean, 67 years is almost hard to comprehend. So I always do math in my head, Richard, you know, I'm 60 now, although I don't feel 60. If I do another 20 years, that gives me 50. I don't know if I can do that. I, I don't know if I would want to do it. I'd have to see how I felt. And, and the one thing that um, makes me think about how long I'm going to do it is I got married late in life and I have really young children, uh, six and eight year old. Hmm. And I just don't want to be away the whole time. I don't want to be that person that's away all the time and miss them growing up because you know, and I'm on my deathbed, I'm not going to say, gee, I wish I had done 51 years of Yankee baseball. So um, at some point with the radio show and the Yankee game, something has to give because I, I, I owe it to my wife and my kids. So that that's that's a variable that wasn't there, you know, 10 years ago. You know, the, my my career has been driven by the fact that I was I was selfish. I did things and made decisions for myself. But once I got married, 10 years ago and then had the kids, you know, now you're making decisions for a lot of people and you have to be fair to them. So uh, I, I just don't know if I've got 60 years in me. I don't know if I'll live to lady. I hope I do, but who knows? How is Mike, how is the pandemic? How is the last year or so, including calling games? Um, how has that changed your thinking professionally? And it sort of obviously gets into the last answer that you just gave. Well, you know what? It's actually in, in terms of family, Richard, it's been easier you know, where I'm doing this interview with you right now, I, I don't leave my house. Um, so I, I did, um, I do my radio show four and a half hours a day here when there's no Yankee game. And, uh, you know, last year, a couple of times, you know, we did, uh, we did the game on monitors from my basement. So, I mean, the technology is so amazing where it saves me time. You know, like when I do my radio show, we do it out of New York City. It's an hour and 10 minute ride from my house. So I get off at 630. Um, you know, I'm not getting home until, you know, 20 to eight. So that's time that I can spend with my kids. Once the game's over or the show is over, boom, you know, at, at 630 and 30 seconds, I'm, I'm playing with Charlie and Callie. So that actually has been the positive out of this. The negative is that you see how much fans, you know, in, in terms of the game, they, they really are the frame and the soundtrack to the, to, to the sport. It, it really lends something to it. Last year was like the darkest and most depressing year of baseball I've ever done. You know, sitting in a dark Yankee stadium with no fans in there. That was odd. I think it just makes you appreciate normalcy more. I think we take normal for granted and we want more than normal. But, you know, with what went on in the world, I think normal's pretty cool now. Michael, one of the, you know that one of the um, sort of big discussion points in baseball has a baseball broadcasting, I should say, 
has been what the future is going to hold in terms of broadcasters such as yourself traveling, particularly to road games. Um, I'd like to think that in a post-COVID universe, most broadcasters will still, um, most networks or, or regional networks will still have broadcasters on site. But I wanted to get your thought on just where you think things are heading because there's there seems to be a lot of momentum for doing road games remotely to save money or to use the production um, facilities or elements from the road broadcaster and then the home broadcast guys just call that either from their house or a or a home studio. I think something's going to be lost from that, but I also understand the business end of this, that if you can save hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, you're going to do this. Well, uh, we have not traveled yet. So I do all the road games from Yankee Stadium. So an empty Yankee Stadium. And it's weird because, you know, yesterday's game against the Phillies, I'm at Yankee Stadium alone. Paul O'Neill's in his house in Cincinnati. And Meredith is, I think, the first traveling um, clubhouse reporter. So she was actually Philly. That's the first time that any network has done that. But I got to tell you, Richard, I've heard a lot of my um, broadcasting brethren complain about it. But I'm pragmatic. I understand it's a business. Now, do you get a better broadcast if you're on the road and you're there? Yep. Is there that much of a difference that people should freak out about it? No. No, I don't think the average person really notices. I called a no-hitter from a monitor, and I don't think I lost anything. I really don't. Now, did I lose the thrill of being there? Absolutely. But I still had the excitement of calling a no-hitter, and I think I expanded, extended that to our listeners. And um, I, I think we all have to look at it and say, no matter how you uh, spin the numbers or cook the books, every regional sports network lost a heck of a lot of money last year. So if this year they don't travel us because they want to save millions of dollars, I get it. I'm not going to kick and scream about it. I'm surprised that a lot of people in the business are kicking and screaming about it. I think we have to be pragmatic. We have to realize that people, there are investors, there are people that have invested money and want to try to get some of it back. And if keeping us off, off the road for a while this year does that for them, I get it. And I'm all for it. I understand. Uh, again, in a perfect world, do I want this to be the way it is going forward? No. But I do understand that there are some bean counters in rooms that realize, wow, they can do the games without traveling and staying in four-star hotels. Hmm. Hmm, that might be the way to go. I think that a lot of now, even national networks are, are going to have some games where they'll have people sitting in front of the monitor and call it. And the problem is that all of us have done such a pretty good job at it that the people that you know, move decimals around or trying to say, wow, this can be done again. I hope it's not that way moving forward. And if it is that way moving forward, I hope that for big series that they would reconsider, but I get it. Let's, let's put it that way. I get it. Let me ask you one more question about the Yankees and then we'll finish up with sport your, your radio show, which is always interesting to me. Um, I think I've asked you this before when you've been on this podcast um, or, or maybe it was a round table that you've done with me, but when you um, you have a very interesting career in that you are critical of or can be critical of the Yankees on your radio show, but at the same time um, you're their broadcaster. You're you're working for in a, in a sense the 
organization. And I'm always interested in how broadcasters are able to sort of navigate that line of being honest with the viewers during a game broadcast. I feel like the Mets guys are very, very good about, you know, when if they have to be critical of the team on air, they are. But I think they've established that. And now I think the audience expects that. I'm sure, Michael, you've listened to broadcasts around the country. There are people who are just outright homers. They just they they will say only good things about the organization, uh, even if it's sort of what's in front of us, you know, that we're seeing with our own eyes isn't the case. How have you navigated that in um, in the Yankee world? A very maybe arguably the highest profile team in 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 baseball. Well, you know we're very critical on the broadcast, and I think we're as critical as anybody else. But I just think there's this perception. You know, there's a there's a radio and TV columnist in New York who calls the Yes Network Al Yang Zero, and I think that's the narrative that's put out there. I defy any play-by-play guy to be as honest and critical as I am. I mean, there are people that are are as, but more so. I don't think so. And the reason that I could do it, Richard, is that the Yankees never say a word. Because they realize the value of honesty. If you're going to tell people that the food stinks, then they're going to believe you when you say the food is great. If you're going to tell them that bad food tastes great, why should they believe you? about good food. So I tell the truth all the time. I mean, there was a couple of weeks ago, they were playing, they were awful. And I, I said on the air, this is embarrassing what's going on on the field, the way the Yankees are playing. It's embarrassing. And you know, it. you see other broadcasts, there are so many people uh, around the country that just, you know, they're, they're blowing smoke constantly. And I guess that's what the fan base wants. I don't think that would play in New York. I think Gary and his crew and um, my crew, um, and I, I think, I think honesty works in New York. I, if you listen to all the sports in New York City, you know, um, Ian Eagle and, and Mike Breen. I mean, just that's that's the way it rolls in New York City. We're just going to tell you the truth, and you know, you, you realize that you know you probably get more excited when the Yankees are doing well. But when I'm getting excited when the Yankees are doing well, people could people know that I'm telling the truth. But in other cities, good guys won, bad guys nothing. I couldn't do it, number one, because of my journalistic background. I don't think it would play in New York. Now, some fans want it. And I get the sense, Richard, that um, there are more younger fans now with the advent of social media. And you read it on Twitter. They want you to, to be all about roses. And it'll be interesting to see how that progresses. But the, the Yankees have never said a word. And, and the fact that on the radio show, I'm probably even more critical because it's you know, that's a vehicle for my opinion. And they never say a word. They, they just don't. I think George Steinberg always valued, you know, telling the truth on the air. And also the funny thing is he was probably saying the same things that he wasn't on the air. So he sees the announcer saying it. and That's what he's saying. And I think that Hal is, is very even tempered and has never, ever said a word about me being critical of the team. So I, I appreciate that. And it, it allows me to do the broadcast that I want. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, let's finish up on your radio show. Um, I, I'm, you're smart enough to know that the um, if you look at the larger landscape, um, sports radio is not what it was uh, 15, 10 years ago. Podcasts are um, are such a dominant medium right now. When it comes to how people listen to audio and on-demand audio, the monetization of podcasts continues to grow. But here's my but, Michael. Here's the, this is why you are an interesting guy here. But in cities like New York and in cities like Boston, sports talk radio matters still. Like people care about what you have to say, what the people on WFAN have to say. It's the same thing with the two prominent sports stations in Boston. And I wonder just how, you know, in a in a way, to me, like you're, you and your group are sort of going to be like the la- like almost the last of 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 the really important spot sports talk shows, um, because I think outside of some of the the biggest cities in the country, you know, the Chicago's, the New Yorks, the Phillies, the Boston's, I feel like um, we're heading to more of an on demand world where uh, hearing Michael K's opinion at three o'clock is not going to be as important as, yeah, I can listen to Michael K's opinion, but I want to listen to it at 11 o'clock at night because that fits more into my schedule. So what's it like to host a prominent show for you in, in 2021 as the, um, as the world, at least in terms of on, on-air audio and sports radio is changing around you? you know, it's funny. I, I understand the value of podcasts. I do, but it's not immediate. You know, it, it can't give you news as it happens. So we're doing a podcast right now. And if I drop dead, the podcast is pretty much finished. But if I drop dead on live radio while you're interviewing me, it's a different story. So yeah. I get some publicity, though, if that did happen. I hope that doesn't happen, Michael. But if it does happen, that's that's very good for me. So thank you. Well, yeah, whatever works for you, Rick, <laughs> if, you know, if I could help. But I, I believe that the immediacy of radio as a whole, you're right, has dropped down. But the thing that live radio gives you is that you can react on the fly and also have the power of the podcast because our entire show is put into a podcast. And sometimes I don't even think we should do that because it, it, it hurts ratings because you know, it, people are shapeshifters. If they want to hear the Michael K show at 11 o'clock at night, they could sit there and listen to their podcast, but that doesn't give us any ratings. You know, if you listen to our podcast, okay, we got a lot of clicks on the podcast, but unlike other shows in our, our city and streaming and stuff like that, we don't make any money off it because we don't charge extra commercials for our podcast or our streaming. So uh, I, I think I think radio is still a very important part of the landscape. Uh, and you say sports radio is not the same as it was. And I would agree ratings wise, because in the in the heyday of Mike and the Mad Dog, you know, they'd get like a, an average quarter hour of over a one. Yeah. Now, if you get an average quarter hour of like five or six, your bosses will hug you. It just it's different. It's just a different it's a different landscape. But I still think it's important. I I still think people turn to morning drive and afternoon drive and podcast allows people to enjoy things on their own time. But if you want like if if if, if the Yankees make a trade today at three forty five, you can't really call up a podcast to find out about it. You're going to turn on the radio to see what we think about it. And I think that that's the advantage that radio has over podcasts. 
You you've been very honest, including with me. Um, you know, I don't cover New York radio on any kind of daily basis, but obviously the Mike Francesa was a national story. And when I had talked to you uh, prior, and you've been honest with other writers too, like ratings matter to you. Like it was important for you to be uh, to to try to take down um, Francesa, who obviously had a, a top rated show uh, within sports for a long time. Why? Why do ratings matter for you, Michael, when I could certainly make the argument that there's enough listeners to go around to listen to your show that you do on ESPN Radio and the uh, the Evan Roberts, Craig Carton show that goes on WFM? I mean, the reality is, like, you both these programs can probably make money and both these programs can have a fan base. Why is it, why is it important to you to sort of be number one in the slot? I guess ego, competitive nature. You know, why do something unless you're trying to be the best at it? And, you know, the Yankee games, I mean, we always get good ratings, but they're not getting ratings because of Michael Kay and David Cohn and Paul O'Neill. They're getting ratings because of what's on the screen. Um, the players, the radio, it's me. It's me and Don and Peter. And if we're not the, you know, number one, then people are choosing other people over us. And that strikes the ego a little bit. And I got to tell you what, I was so invested in the Francesa stuff that I know this is going to sound childish that made my career in radio when we beat him before he left, because he was just very, very, um, very out there about how he'd never been beaten. You know, when we first came on the, the scene, he called us a pea shooter and stuff like that. And that was my goal. I mean, I was going to hang in there and I just, I felt we were against the clock. You know, we were making, we we're making up huge chunks of, of ratings ground in the last couple of years, but I knew it was coming to an end. I just knew it. And I just, we, we had to beat him legitimately without the streaming nonsense that they argue about. We had to beat him straight out before he left. And the fact that we did it before he left, it, it still brings a smile to my face. It really does. And then he came back and we beat him again. And uh, that was just extraordinary. It was, it was just a great feeling. And now, We've got even more competition, you know, you know, Mike presented something that was tough to beat. And now, now, uh, Carton and Roberts are presenting something that's tough to beat and they're going to be difficult. They really are. And I know that ratings mean an awful lot to Craig as well with everything that he's gone through. And, you know, he wants to go after us and I'm somewhat hamstrung. And again, my competitive nature gets angry at this is that, you know, I work for two Tiffany brands. I can't really go low on ESPN. I can't go low and be connected to the Yankees. Now, Michael K, the person, if I wasn't connected, I could go as low as anybody, believe me. But, you know, I'm, I, I've kind of got handcuffs on and, and, and Craig and, and, and Evan, they don't. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. They've done very, very well since Craig came back. And I will tell you this, he's an extraordinary radio host. He knows exactly how to push buttons and get people engaged. And, it's going to be another challenge. It really is. One of the things that was very clear with Francesa, Mike, is that you were the underdog in sort of that rivalry. As crazy as that would sound be for a guy working for ESPN yep. uh, or the Yankees, the reality is you were absolutely the underdog in that. And I think that narrative people, in a sense, like. they, you know, We like to see the underdog ultimately top the overdog, particularly an overdog like Francesa. And I give him credit, obviously, for his radio career, but he could be a total asshole when it came to the rating stuff. So, you know, you, he made it easy to root against him, I think, at times, um, 
even if you didn't particularly love Michael K. Uh, it feels a little different here, and this is not yeah. to say that um, that that WFAN is some like uh, little engine that could. But do you agree with that? Like, uh, you're not the I don't know if you're the overdog here, but you're certainly no longer the underdog in this in this ratings rivalry. Is that fair? It's totally fair, and I actually. Uh said on another podcast about a month ago. Yeah. John Jastrzemski. Uh, I listened yeah. to that New York, New York podcast. Yep. Yeah. I, I feel like um, I didn't feel pressure against Francesa. I, I mean, I felt internal pressure. I wanted to do it and I wanted to do it before he, he retired. But, you know, again, if I didn't do it, um, that's a big, bad Mike Francesa. It's hard to beat him. But, you know, when, when Craig and Evan teamed up, we, we were number one. So all of a sudden we're the favorite. And they're the underdog. So I feel I feel pressure now to, to hold them off. And uh, I, I hope that we can. Again, the ratings, you know, the early ratings would indicate it's going to be very difficult to do. I mean, that is a that's a destination station. FAN, people think of sports talk. They think of they think of FAN in New York and, and ESPN is this monster brand in television. But it's certainly not this monster brand in radio. So I feel I, I know exactly what you're saying. And I definitely feel. Um, more heat now to hold them off than to try to catch Mike. Do you have any kind of personal relationship with either of your competitors at that station? Um, before Craig uh, went to jail, uh, we had him on the show hmm. for an hour. Oh yeah, I think I remember that. Yeah, and that was that was interesting. And then he asked me if I would go to lunch with him, and we had about a two-hour lunch at PJ Clark's. And, uh, you know, he just talked about everything and I, and I wished him luck. And, um, I knew he would, he would be back in some way because he's, um, as I said, a tremendous broadcaster. I didn't know if it would be an afternoon drive, but their morning show certainly done very well. And, uh, you know, I even told our people, you should hire him and put him on ESPN national, but that, that didn't seem to get any traction. You know, I, I've talked to a lot of people recently and, Maybe I've become a sap in my old age and I'm too nice of a guy. I don't know. But, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, he's going to get in trouble again. You'll be fine. I said, no, no, no. I, I don't want him to get in trouble. I'd rather lose and have him have a happy life with his family than have him get in trouble again. And I can't claim victory then. That's terrible. Why would you root that way? I don't think that I would ever root that way. So if somebody said to me, you know what, Mike, you could press a button. Craig Carton could get in trouble again, get thrown off the air and you'll be number one. Or you're going to lose to them and he's going to live a happy life. I can honestly tell you, I'd say I'd rather lose and have him have a happy life. That's just as I just that's I'm sorry. That's the way I was brought up. That's the person that I am. And I don't have the uh, the animus or the the enmity that I had toward Mike. I really don't. Now, Craig, I don't listen to his show, but people tell me that, you know, he's nasty about me and says nasty things. And, you know, again, I can't go that route. So I know it's a radio war and things like that. But I'll just have to win on content and uh, and talent and the three of us together. And, and if we can't do it, we can't do it. But again, I only wish him the best of luck, and I hope that his life goes great. Last one for me. You um, you started in the business as a writer, as you mentioned at the Post. Although people like New Yorkers should know that uh, you you went to college at Fordham and started your radio career at WFUV, which is one of the legendary college stations uh, um in the country and uh for anybody who's not familiar with that place just look at some of the uh the people who um who are started there and and made their bones there uh yeah we should get more love than syracuse does i agree uh 
Plus, uh, Syracuse uh, has done well too. Yeah, Syracuse has done well too. But you know, the Breens and the Jack Curries, Michael K. You guys have, uh, you guys have done, and Vince Scully, of course. You guys have done nicely for yourself. So you you started as a writer, and then very early on in your career, moved to what I would consider front facing positions, which means that people are going to write about you or comment about you. And I wonder, um, how do I sort of phrase this? Like, you obviously sort of have to get used to it because it's been part of your life. But how, how do I sort of how do I sort of ask this? I, I'm I'm wondering like how that was for you early on, like for 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 people, let's say in my position, to sort of write about what you're doing to now. And I think you've always been honest in that. You say you read the stuff, which everybody reads, and I appreciate your honesty saying, yeah, I do read it, but how do, I guess how do you process it? How do you process it when you, for lack of a better word, become the news and people are commenting and critiquing on what you do for your profession? Um, it's not easy. Um, it never was easy, not because I'm shy or anything like that. I, I don't mind being, you know, for lack of a better phrase, on center stage. You know, I, I don't mind that at all, um, but I don't know, Richard, I'm being totally honest with you, bearing my soul. I don't know if I'm built for this, though, because I'm so incredibly thin skinned and I take everything so personally. And there's parts of me, you know, grew up in the South Bronx that when somebody says something nasty about me in the newspaper that I think is unfair, my first inclination is to strike back at them. And, you know, my bosses at both places go. That doesn't help you. It's it's not productive. I think it is. But it's funny, though, whenever you because I have a four hour, four and a half hour radio show, which is kind of like my column, if you know what I mean. Yep. And if somebody says something nasty about me, I can say something nasty back. But then they'll strike back and go, oh, he can't take criticism. But I can. But I can give it back, too. And the funny part is, and, and you know, you, you criticize people in the athletic. Uh, I don't know if you're like this. People that criticize people do not like to be criticized. They yeah, don't. It's not, it's, it's, not, it's not easy to read it about yourself, but you got to, at least I try to then remind myself that like, hey, if I'm going to offer an opinion about uh, an ESPN management decision or something like that, I got I to gotta own it if somebody says, hey, you know, you're yeah, this or you're that. Yeah, but it doesn't feel good. No, it does like, not feel good. Never does. Like yeah. this was maybe five years ago. Um, you know, I've had a love-hate relationship with Phil Mushnick. And he wrote something I thought was eminently unfair. And I went off on the radio like a lunatic. About 21 minutes of lunacy by me. <laughs> I wish I heard that. And I go to a break and my phone rings and it's Lupica. And he Mike goes, Lupica, right. right. He goes, you happy? I go, yeah. He goes, okay. He's not going to let you up now for five years. He goes, what you just did made you feel good for 20 minutes, and now you're in his crosshairs for, for, for five years, so get ready. And he was right. He was right, because the guys that criticize don't like being criticized, and since they're columnists, they don't have to be journalistically sound. They could just write, I don't like this guy. I don't like the way he sounds. Uh, he's too uh, gives too many stats, whatever the case may be. So I, that was a, that was a lesson learned. It was a lesson learned. That, you know, I could, I'll take my little shots, but they'll be quick and I'm not going to go 20 minutes off, off the top of my head about what a bad person somebody is. But again, I'm very, I, I don't even hide it. My skin is so thin, it's translucent and it, it just bothers me when I feel I'm unfairly criticized. Now, if I mess up 
If I mess up a call and you say, wow, Michael just messed up the call, bring it. I deserved it. But when you say stuff like just the way I do stuff or, you know, something that rubs you the wrong way, it, it bothers me because I don't get it. I don't understand the meanness of it because I do my radio show. I, one thing I'm proud of, I've done the radio show 20 years, Richard, and never once on that show have I ever sat there and demanded that somebody be fired. Because what I've always understood, even when I was a writer, is that the person that you're ripping and that you're asking, they lose their job. They have a family. They support their family with their job. And Don jumps on me all the time because Don says, well, somebody should be fired. I've never said it. I will never say it. I think it's the wrong thing to do. I think there are people behind these public figures. And I think sometimes we forget that. We just think that, you know, they're cardboard cutouts. No, they're not. They live, they breathe. And I know that when, when my mom was alive and people would rip me in the newspapers, it would infuriate her and it would ruin her day. And this is, you know, this was a 70, you know, 75 year old woman. I don't want to do that to somebody's family. Yeah, I'm critical, but I'm never going to call for somebody's job. And I, I, I'm amazed people in my business doing radio talk shows throughout the country where they just cavalierly go, this guy has to be fired. The hitting coach has to be fired. You've got to fire them. I, I can't do it. I just don't have it in me. Maybe I'm not built for it. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I appreciate your honesty when it comes to being thin-skinned because I think all of us, uh, uh, I shouldn't stereotype, but many of us in this business, um, at, certainly at times of our career, are that. And you should sort of acknowledge that and be honest. Uh, Michael Kay is the voice of the television voice of the New York Yankees. He's the host of Center Stage and the Yes Network, host of the Michael K. Show on ESPN Radio from 2 to 6.30. I'll give uh, the book that's coming out this week again, Center Stage, My Most Fascinating Interviews from A-Rod to Jay-Z. And that's a collection of the interviews that Michael's done on the Center Stage show. And again, um, if you just uh, just Google Center Stage and see some of the names that he's talked to, it's kind of amazing. I mean, it, it really is uh, uh, like A-list city and right up there with some of the major uh, late night shows that have these guests. Michael, I always enjoy catching up with you and I always appreciate your time. Um, thanks today for joining me on the sports media podcast. You got it, Richard. Thanks for having me. I appreciate that. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. All right, as I said at the top, I've known John Wertheim a long time. Uh, he's one of the best guys in the business that I'm at could not be uh, more incredibly helpful to me during my sports illustrated career. So I'm always happy when he has a project to bring him on. He has like, uh, like Michael, like my other guest on this podcast, Michael K like 15,000 jobs. He's a senior writer for sports illustrated. He is a correspondent for 60 minutes. He's an analyst for the tennis channel and he is the author of glory days, the summer of 1984 and the 90 Days That Changed Sports and Culture. The book is out this week um, in hardcover. Head to Amazon where you can purchase this or wherever books are sold. And I'm pleased to be joined by John Wertheim. John, I'm taping this uh, 
shortly after the conclusion of the French Open. I mean, you must be tired. For you, I rally. Um, nice to be here. Crazy French Open, but uh, we're, we're off to the next thing, which regrettably is book promotion. Thanks for having me. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. Uh, we'll get to the French Open a little bit because the one thing I will talk, I would like to get John's perspective on is um, Naomi Osaka and um, and everything that happened since her uh, decision to um, skip press conferences and then obviously pull out of the French Open. So, John, um, the, 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 the thread here, the, the tissue that connects this book are all these kind of remarkable things that happen during a very short time in 1984, whether that's sort of the beginning of the, uh, the Michael Jordan explosion, the 1984 Olympics, you know, WrestleMania and WWE becoming a phenomenon, the Karate Kid coming out. Uh, there's a chapter in your book on um, ABC and ESPN and sort of the, the, the deal that ultimately ex- helped explode cable television and ESPN's riches into the universe. So at a certain point, you must have noticed that all of these things are happening around uh, the same time. Uh, when did this idea come to you? Um, good question. I, I did a piece for, uh, for our former colleague, Ted Keith, uh, for Sports Illustrated on my experience with the 84 Olympic trials. When I was in middle school, they were held in my hometown in Indiana. Jordan was there. Barkley was there. Stockton, Malone, and zero security. It just seemed like the most normal thing to be <laughs> walking down the street and like there was Michael Jordan, you know, drinking a smoothie, looking for a ride to the mall. And someone approached me and they said, man, this would be a great book. And, you know, McCallum had done the Dream Team book. And I didn't think you could do a whole book on the 84 Olympic team. But then I started poking around and the almighty newspapers.com, which is uh, every journalist's uh, secret weapon. And you realize like every single day brought a news item that we still can recall today. And, you know, when it was, you know, Bird and Magic played in the game seven of the finals, meeting of the finals for the first time in front of new commissioner David Stern. And a few days after that, Jordan was drafted. And a guy named Mike Tyson lost at the Olympic trials the same day John McEnroe won Wimbledon. I mean, just every single day was this explosion of sports news. And so, you know, there, there's certainly an element of nostalgia and coincidences, but I think you hit on it, which is what I also realized is you had this this binding force, sort of what, what made it more than just a series of coincidences was this rise of cable, this rise, this realization that sports equals commerce, and this was more than games, this was business. And it did, it did seem like this was a summer when it all really crystallized. Um, how do you, ne- this is like a very, seems to me, maybe the, um, the principal challenge for the author in this case, you, how do you navigate all this into a, into a narrative that, that works? Uh, that is a great question. And that's a challenge. I mean, these are sort of standalone chapters, but hopefully, uh, there's some themes woven, uh, woven into it. Um, but no, I mean, that's, that's always the challenge of this book. Bill, Bill Bryson did a great book on the summer of 1927. And that was, um, that was a bit of a model for this and it's Lindbergh and it's, it's the Yankees and it's, you know, Louisiana politics. That was a bit of the model, but you know, you also sort of had to go chronologically because you can't, you know, you you can't write about the Olympics before you write about the rise of Jordan and David Falk and him being drafted. So the chronology was sort of a crutch, but I tried to weave it in. So it wasn't just uh, in June happened, you know, this happened in June, this happened in July, this happened in August. 
I, I it, remind me if I'm right about this. In reading this book, did did Michael Jordan call you McEnroe or called you like tennis guy? Is it? Do I have my <laughs> recollection right? Man, good for, um, yeah. When I was uh, when, when you know when I was in middle school, he did. For this book, he did not participate. Um, well, happily, one of the few people who who didn't because a lot of people were great. But um, yeah, when I was in, uh, I mean, again, this is this is all in my little hometown in the Midwest in Bloomington, Indiana, and I would. You know, I was a sleepy town to begin with, especially in the summer when when school's out of session and all these. I was a sports nut, a sports nerd, and I would walk around town with my tennis racket. And Michael Jordan was something I'd, I'd run into all the time. And they would hold practice in, in the assembly hall. They wouldn't even lock the door. I mean, everyone, anyone could walk in off the street and go watch Michael Jordan. You know, Charles Barkley, Pat Ewing, and coached by Bob Knight practice for the Olympics. There was there was no hype there was no security there was no entourage until michael jordan would see me around town that summer and uh nickname me McEnroe. and i think one of the highlights of the first 20 years of my life um the nba all-star game was in indianapolis the few months later jordan was a rookie um and i'm one of those kids that you know leans against the the railing trying to get autographs and we made eye contact and he said john McEnroe, and the fact that uh Michael Jordan recognized me as a 13-year-old and, and still had the nickname. I think may have been the the highlight of my adolescence. That's awesome. The I, I wonder now if you can reflect, because it's it's almost inconceivable. To do you reflect upon the Jordan who's able to walk around Bloomington like I, whatever he was, 19 or 20 years old at that time, um, you know, not knowing the world that is about to. Uh, be in front of him to today, whatever he is, 52 years old, a, you know, a, a billionaire. It just seems like that Michael Jordan, like that, that like universe can't even exist today. Do you know what I mean? Because the, if there was a Michael Jordan of today, a 16 or 17 year old prodigy, I mean, you know, this obviously I'm covering tennis, the the world would already recognize, you know, the sports world will already recognize that person. You know what I'm saying? It just seems inconceivable that, a 13 year old kid could have the same experience that you had back then. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it goes for me and I think you're right. I think that's really, um, I think it's really perceptive. That goes for Jordan as well. I mean, he didn't even want to turn pro. I mean, Dean Smith basically forced him to, uh, to be Michael Jordan began that summer wanting to go back for his senior year at Carolina and go play with Kenny Smith and, uh, stay a college kid. And, you know, we, we knew who Michael Jordan was, but it wasn't this, this this god and again he he shows up in bloomington indiana he has to try out for the team there are no guarantees he arrives alone um joe klein who was on the team who who played in the nba had this great scene of all these guys getting picked up at the indianapolis airport and thrown onto vans and he's like you know i'm sitting in a van driving on this indiana state road and charles barkley's in the front seat and, and patrick ewing's in the back seat and um the notion of that happening right now is, uh, is, is pretty laughable for, for highly regarded 20 year old basketball players, a few weeks from being lottery picks. Um, so yeah, I mean, there, there's an innocence, there's a purity, but again, I mean, I, I saw this summer as this real demarcation, um, be- between sort of a purity of sports and a, and a commerce of sports. And it's, it's not necessarily bad. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I, I think sports are in a very healthy place and it probably was undervalued at the time, but yeah, it's it's wild that Jordan started that summer as a sort of sheepish college kid who wanted to go back for his senior year before his coach realized how absurd that was and basically made him enter the draft a year early. And by the end of the summer, David Falk is involved, Nike is involved, Jordan's won a gold medal, he's the third pick in the draft, and suddenly 
in the span of 90 days, he goes from not even wanting to go into the NBA to having his own signature shoe. The um, You have a chapter on this. Obviously, there have been books, uh, including by our mutual uh, colleague Jeff Perlman on this, but it's pretty amazing to think about that. In 1984, uh, Donald Trump was simply a rich New York City businessman who um, was kind of bullshitting his way into more celebrity and wanted to be part of the um, the sports scene to sort of continue his uh, uh, his legacy as a you know as a king of the world in Manhattan and was um, you know bought the New Jersey Generals from a an oil tycoon. Um, it's crazy. I mean, I I read Perlman's book on the USFL, which I thought was a great book, but it still John remains crazy to think that you know where we are now in the universe that once upon a time, Donald Trump was just a rich dude in New York who just wanted to get into sports. Um, I'll tell you, Freddie, in the summer of 84, it was sort of Donald Trump's uh, sort of coming out. And it was, hey, this is a New York real estate figure, but he's going to be a national figure. And he was on the cover of GQ, ironically written by Graydon Carter, who uh, would later, of course, (laughs) go mock him. And then also there was a great New York Times Magazine piece by Willie Geist's dad, by Bill Geist. And again, the story was sort of like, hey, everyone knows this clown in New York, but he's, he's really going to become a national presence. And there's, I, I don't have it in front of me, but there are these great lines like, you know, Trump plays fast and loose with the truth, but he has a magnetism. And, you know, r- riding with Donald Trump is like riding on a motorcycle w- without a windshield to catch the bugs. And I, I guess e- either he's remarkably consistent, uh, Trump is, this is, this is 37 years ago, and you could literally cut and paste these observations and they would ring true today. But I, I think that's sort of lost in some of the Trump retelling. I mean, Jeff, Jeff's book um, was terrific and was something I leaned on, and I think that we gloss over this. Trump really used sports as a way to, to certify himself and become this national figure. You know, Charlie Steiner was the voice. There are all these great coincidences just doing the research. I, I never knew this. I don't know, maybe you did. Charlie Steiner was the voice of the generals. Uh, he was the, you know, the, the voice of the USFL team Trump bought. And he has these great stories of sort of the, the players love Trump in part because he wanted to be the center of attention. He would go into the locker room after the game and he would do the interviews. So the player would say, all right, fine. The, the owner wants to talk to the media. I'm going to leave and go home. Um, there were all these earmarks. There were all these sort of road signs about what this guy was, what he was about, um, sort of his on-again, off-again relationship with truth. And, and I think uh, sometimes we forget that sports really played a role in, in the myth-making. And, you know, he would use Trump Tower and figure out ways to, you know, his, his wife would design the cheerleaders' outfits and this what we would now call integration, you know, all, all the sort of same, it's the equivalent, the 1984 equivalent of coming down the escalator. He, he did that with the generals, uh, you know, 30 plus years prior. So, um, you know, whether that's foreshadowing or whether he just stuck to the playbook, I guess we can debate. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good observation by you. And in many ways, I think um, after the USFL blew up, uh, he used tennis to try to maintain his um, place in the, in the sports universe, obviously boxing in the WWE too. But, you know, as both of us know from covering the U S opens all those years, his, he was a very, very prominent figure, perhaps the most mm-hmm. prominent non-tennis figure who would attend, uh, that event on a, on a yearly basis. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the planet premier league podcast. 
each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. One last thing um, on the book here. Is that for you, is that of all the um, sort of notable and different things that happened during that summer of 1984, is there one for you that stands out? In, 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 in reading the book, it seems to me, and I think it's the rightful conclusion, that sort of uh, Michael Jordan and you have – you sort of pay tribute to David Stern in your book. It seems like the – you know, the – the sort of coming of Jordan really is the perhaps arguably the biggest event that happens then just because of what Jordan becomes in uh, both financially and in the sports world, you know, arguably one of the, if not the greatest sportsmen in U.S. history. Yeah, it's funny because some of this book is about the athletes and Jordan and, and Bird and Magic and you know, Mary Lou Retton and Carl Lewis, but but also it's about David Stern and Vince McMahon and – David Falk and the people that were quick to recognize, you know, ESPN that was, you know, ABC bought ESPN and basically saved ESPN that summer. Um, so some of the summer was about the athletes. Some of it was just about these guys who realized that sports were really undervalued. And this coming force called cable TV could really be a, could really be a game changer. Um, you know, what's it? I didn't write about this, but what's one thing that really struck me about Jordan, he was so cool. And he was funny and he was a prankster and he was well-spoken and he was really sort of the, this, the, the leader of the Olympic team. And the reason why Nike throws all this money at him doesn't just say, hey, we're going to give you a poster the way we did Dr. J and Magic and Bird, the way Nike realized they had something special. He was so charismatic and so magnetic and smart and cool. It, it, you know, now that you mention it, it it's a little bit, I don't want to say sad, but it, it's a little disappointing to me what Jordan has become. Um, Jordan should be Barkley, you know? I mean, jo Jordan had so much charisma at age 20, 21, 37 years ago. If you'd said this guy's going to be the greatest basketball player ever, I think a lot of people would say, yeah, it sounds about right. I can see that. If you said, yeah, he's going to be this sort of uh, reclusive billionaire who we, we don't really know what he stands for and he lives lives in uh, you know a, a gated community within a gated community, plays a lot of golf, and uh, we don't really know what he's about. I think people would be really disappointed. I mean, jo Jordan, by what he presented and expressed in 1984, Jordan should be one of these Ali slash Barkley, one, one of these forces later in life. And to me, it's a bit of a pity he isn't. Well, I mean, I think that's a good observation by you, but I think the reality, John, is that the world sort of might not have allowed that in the uber amount of attention that he ultimately got. Um, obviously what happened with his, um, the murder of his dad, I almost think that the, um, I don't know, feels like the atmosphere around Jordan ultimately turned Jordan into the personality he had. I'm sure some of that is Michael as well, but I just, I don't know how you could have maintained and continued to be the same carefree guy. If you're the most sort of famous, one of the most famous people on the planet, do you know what I mean? It, it almost seems yeah, an impossible no. task to do that. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the fame, we saw this in the last dance, right? I mean, the, the, the yeah. fame sort of, sort of ate him uh, unfairly so. 
but I, I just, I was so struck by how different Jordan was co- coming out of North Carolina and yeah, as a exactly. sort of f- f- funny prankster as, as he is um, in his mid fifties. But yeah, uh, that's, and that's, a, that's so, a fair, so it goes. that's a fair point. Um, all right, let's finish up with this. Um, you know, you, you, you work for the tennis channel. You've obviously been a tennis journalist now for, for multiple decades. You've sat in more press conferences uh, than most people on earth. And, uh, and you've interviewed Naomi Osaka many, many times. Um, uh, as we, we now have passed the French Open, and it's a little unclear as to when Naomi will come back to the tour. Um, how did you view everything that happened? It was not a good moment for tennis. Um, people basically pick sides where you either sort of felt empathy for Naomi Osaka and whatever mental health stuff she was going on versus another side of people saying, you know, she goes to the tournament, she has to accept the responsibilities of doing press. And, you know, that's the price for to be the $55 million athlete. Um, I, le- I sort of come away with it. Basically it's, you know, obviously I hope the best for her her mental health, but it's not, it has not been a good moment for tennis. Nobody wins here, at least from what I've seen. Uh, I I think that's right. I mean, I think this was sort of a a distillation of tennis and it's, it's flaws and some of, uh, you know, it's not the most buttoned up sport in part because it's a bunch of individual contractors in part because there's no union and it's the, the virtues are that it's men and women and it's international and it's 39 year olds and it's also teenagers, but sometimes that can be, uh, you know, a, a sort of tower of Babel. I, I just think this was a huge, it, it was sad, A, because it was so avoidable. And also, I just thought it was a huge misread. I mean, anyone that knows Naomi Osaka, I mean, I think she's she's wonderful. I think she's uh, she is so different from any other athlete and she is so not packaged. And there there is really, I hate this word, but there is such an authenticity to her. And anyone that's been around tennis knew that this was about Naomi Osaka. It was what she was going through. She's spoken very openly and admirably in the past about her, her mental health challenges. And this was perceived as a sort of shot across the bow and this defiant athlete. And it wasn't that at all. And I thought it was such a misread and it, it's fine if it's people that are just sort of, uh, t- t- I mean, the, the fact that the, the four major events didn't realize what was going on. And this was not about a difficult player. This wasn't about Marshawn Lynch. This wasn't about challenging authority. It was about an athlete who, was really broken in that moment. And instead of being sensitive to that, it turned into the sort of referendum on players and rights. I mean, the other thing point I think got lost in this was that these tournaments, you watch these press conference and it, the French Open, there's a BNP Paribas banner. You know, it's like the, the Dunkin' Donuts with, uh, with the Patriots and their water bottles. And the, the tournaments have a real interest in these press conferences that goes beyond any sort of First Amendment protection or any sort of solidarity with journalism. I mean, this is extra content for them. This is uh, something that they can sell sponsors. They put out these press conference clips socially. So I, I think that um, the, the tournaments were very much acting. I mean, I, again, I think it was sort of foolish and hasty and disproportionate, but I also think we, we missed the point that the tournaments also have a real vested interest here. Um, I mean, I, I think you, you know that it just, it wasn't a good look. You hope Naomi Osaka comes back soon. I mean, I, I do think the, the players were awesome. I mean, the players basically said, I wish her well. I empathize. I don't necessarily find these press conferences to be as stressful and as problematic as she does. Um, I mean, I thought that the players were the adults in the room and had the most measured and, and mature and, and sensible response to this. But yeah, as you, as you say, um, 
you wish more people, uh, you know, how, how many people can name you the, the women's singles winner at the French Open who also won the doubles title? Um, how, how many compare that to the number of people that have a, a take on Naomi Osaka? This is sort of t- t- tennis in a nutshell, the sport that can't get out of its way. What do you expect? Uh, what do you expect her to do over the next couple of months? Do you, do you expect to see her at Wimbledon or the U.S. Open? I, I mean, you know, the what's what's really interesting is going to be the Olympics. I mean, she she is the oh, yeah. I mean, you know, this is a, a, a Japanese athlete with a chance of gold who is this global superstar. Um, I don't know how she doesn't play the Olympics. I mean, I don't know how she doesn't go sort of just given some of this is commercial pressure and some of this is, is national pride. And then some of this is obligations um, that she has anyway. I, I don't know if we'll see her at Wimbledon. It wouldn't surprise me if she said, I'm not ready for that. But the flip side of that is, I don't know how she misses the Olympics. And, uh, you know, I mean, then you'd like to think that um, so, some, some time has passed and she's in a better place. And I, I do think, you know, Serena Williams is a source of great, you know, these, these careers are long. Serena Williams is more than 15 years older than she is. So this is not, um, you know, that this is not something that's going to imperil her career. Um, you, you hope she takes some time off, gets in a better place and comes back. I, again, I, I think we'll see her in Tokyo. And then I would like to think we'll see her defend her U.S. Open title. Get that uh, goat profile on Novak Djokovic ready for 2022, John. Just give, give you a little that's, tip in uh, advance here. It's All right, in the John. works. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. It's good. It's 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 fun though. It's good for that's actually good for tennis. That's John, good for tennis. Yeah, John Wertheim is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated, a correspondent for 60 Minutes, an analyst for the Tennis Channel, and the author of a new book, Glory Days: The Summer of 1984 and the 90 Days That Changed Sports and Culture. John, I wish you nothing but the best of luck on your world tour here of book promotion. You know, hopefully, you can get something much bigger than this. Get 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 a I, I don't know. Come on. Come Get on. a sixty I, minutes I, or a, or something like that, at least. I, I appreciate that. I'm going to challenge your editor and uh, say that I take a great deal of uh, pleasure in what you've done with your career and what and then how you've made this uh, how you've made this a beat. You you were on to something uh, oh, a long time ago, and I'm happy you uh, you, you turned it into what you did. Squirrels equals nut. But thank you, John. That's very kind of you to say, John Wertheim. <laughs> best of luck with the book, John. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks, R.D. Thanks. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to Michael Kay and John Wertheim for their time and insights. Uh, I enjoyed uh, those conversations. That was pretty cool. Um, If you like uh, this kind of stuff, head to the Sports Media with Richard Deitch page wherever you listen to podcasts, uh, Apple or Google Play, Stitcher. Leave us a five-star review and and a, a nice note that is very, very helpful to me previous um, podcast episodes we had ESPN's Ian Dark on calling the Euros and the challenge of that and Anthony Krupe of Sportico on the NBA viewership and where that's heading before that Jamel Hill on Naomi Osaka and Tom Hannafin who uh, WWE people know as Tom Phillips and uh, working in that organization ultimately exiting that organization and then prior to that the Athletics Kavitha Davidson and Jimmy Trainer for an hour of uh, nerding out on sports talk Got some uh, episodes uh, prior to that with um, uh, talking about Kenny Main leaving ESPN. And uh, there should be something in there for you to uh, check out and enjoy. I want to thank Bob Tabador for uh, producing this podcast. Thank you. Uh, my best goes out to Patrick Antonetti because he's uh, dealing with some, uh, some family stuff. Uh, 
Thanks to everybody at Cadence 13 for their support. And of course, thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.